book of the Bible, and we're in chapter 8. We begin reading this morning in verse number 9. Romans chapter 8 and uh, verse number 9. Hope you will be back with us for the evening service, and Brother Ryan Mitchell will be preaching. Bring your Bible and come along to be with us at that time. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, the Bible says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren... We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. One thing you have to have to be a Christian. That's the title of the message coming from Romans chapter 8. And though it has been a long time, well, in fact, several weeks since you and I were together in Romans chapter 8, I hope you haven't forgotten at least the high points of the verses that we've already covered in chapter 8 because it lays and sets itself up as a backdrop to what shall follow. So just as a way of reminder, let me remind you that chapter 8, verse number 1, is one of the great verses in all the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. That's a verse of Scripture that I'd highly recommend that you commit to memory, to heart. That verse of Scripture declares very succinctly that there is now, right this moment, no condemnation to them that believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Secondly, in verse number 2, it simply says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. Put simply, because the law, that is the principle of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has freed me from the law, which was a principle of sin and death. That's what verse 2 is saying and did say, as we shared that with you way back in October. And also in verse number 3, he says in verse 3, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. The law, because the law in this case, the law of Moses, uh, could not do in us because of our weakness of fleshly people. It was a simple thing that God sent his son. He sent him to condemn sin in the flesh. And with that, sin has been condemned. Then verse number four. And verse number four is a, a transitional verse of sorts. Verse four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And that tells you why he did what he did in verse number 3. So that, or that, in order that, the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in you, God sent his Son. And that's what his Son did. I remind you now, as I reminded you back in October, that when we studied this verse and this passage of Scripture between verse 3 and verse 4, there is no contradiction. Where in one verse he says, in verse 3, he tells us that the law, it could not do something because of our flesh 
and the weakness of it. And then he comes back in verse number four and he says, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in you while you're in that, quote, flesh. The point made here is it's not a contradiction. It is rather a change. And that's what's important to see. And the change is, in fact, this change that's taken place is marked by your receiving or your having indwelling in you the Holy Spirit of God. That's the change. And I say to you, as this passage of Scripture underwrites, that in your flesh you could not live the Christian life. In the flesh here in, in its natural nature, in its natural state. That's what he's saying. You could not live the Christian life. In fact, there are just too many things against a person living right in this world apart from God's help. And what God set up to do was he gave you the ultimate help. He gave you, and that primary help, by the way, is the, the focus of the passage we just read in Romans chapter 8. It's the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the only person, the only thing is the title carries it, even though he's not a thing or an object, he's a person. The point made is he's the only thing that has in any sense of the word the ability for you to inquire, to take, to, to, to take or grasp that makes it possible for you to live the Christ-like life. Otherwise, it could not be done. For instance, the fact that there is the world that fights against you. The world at large, and in the world there are all kinds of things. The media fights against your standard of being right. The government fights against it. Did you realize that the United States government actually is better off, at least from their perspective, when we Christians do not raise our voices to hold our system to accountability? Did you know that all the things that are corrupt in this country are all the things that are run counter to what the Bible would teach ought be done? And you know who it is who keeps reminding the government that we need to abstain from those kinds of things? Even in political parties, when someone like an Alan Keyes leaves one part of the country and goes to Illinois to run in an office, who it was who raised the greatest voices against that? It was the Christian community. They said it's not right. It's no more right for him to do it than it was for Clinton's wife to go to New York and do it. But it was the Christian community. One radio station received over three million contacts from believers who said it's just not right. They voted conservative, but they were against wrongdoing. You see, the world and the government and politics always plays by the rules that gets them what they want, not by the standard of what the Scriptures teach. So even this world is against you. Your United States government does not stand in your corner for right always. It will do what's expedient often. And sometimes, even as the case with in this... Um, of great aid that's going out. As I spoke to Lucinda moments ago, well, we will not as a church do anything until we get word from our mission programs around the country to see what is the necessary and needful thing. It's always been a thing. Every time the United States of America has been generous and kind and gracious in what they've given, there's always been a crook somewhere who intercepted our goods. Every single time. The American Red Cross has got it documented. There have been millions of dollars that have gone from this country that have never once gotten to the people who need them because they're people who are crooks out there. They're people who do not have the Holy Spirit who indwells them. I tell you that the world, the flesh, and the devil work against everybody living in any kind of likeness to what God ordained. And the only way you can, or I can, is because God puts some of himself in every one of us by his Holy Spirit. 
That's the only way it's possible. So the passage in Romans chapter 8, the backdrop of that is there's the problem of the flesh in verses 1 through 4. And then when you come to chapter number 8 and verse number 9, he says, but I got good news for you. Here's how it's possible. Let's read it again, and we'll read only the context of that which we'll cover today, which will be verses 9 through 14. He says in verse 9, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, based on all that I've said, we're debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if we live after the flesh, we shall die. But Ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many are as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. There's a whole lot to be said in that text of Scripture. We'll not get to all of them, but it's obvious you'd have to be blind in not reading that text of Scripture and not see the great work of the Holy Spirit and the importance He is to every individual believer. You see, and you must understand this in Romans 8, He, the Holy Spirit, is the one of the Godhead that brings about the changes that are necessary for you to be successful in living the Christian life. If you were to just keep living the Christian life at the level in which you got into it, you'd never be a success spiritually. You'd be a dismal failure. The process of the Christian life is based on progress. It's based on growth. That's why the Bible says, but grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The basis is if you stay where you got in, you'll be a dismal failure. You'll forgive me. There are folks in this city, this county, I hope not in this church, who are exactly at the same place now as it was the first day they came to faith in Christ. They have not grown in grace. They have not given themselves to a daily reading and digesting of the Scriptures. They have not given themselves to daily prayer. They have not given themselves to an exercise of their spiritual muscle, as it were. They have not grown. They have not matured. They are no further into the Christian life today than they were the moment they trusted Christ as Savior. And then they wonder at why that life doesn't have all those glitz and glitter that some other Christians have. I submit to you the basis is that the Spirit of the Lord came into your house your tabernacle, your temple, to do a work in your life so that he could move you from glory to glory, from one level of spirituality to another level of spirituality. But there is one thing for sure. He never works where he's not welcomed. If you're happy with where you are, you don't have to worry about it. The Holy Spirit will sit back in a corner and let you do your thing. Oh, he may convict you, but after a while, even the still small voice sounds only as a whisper. And after a while, he'll not ever even seem to be present. You'll be doing your thing, and he'll be unhappy. He'll content, as it were, dwelling where he is. And the fact of the matter is, that's what this passage of Scripture is all about. It's about the believer understanding the kind of environment that the Spirit of God does his best work. It is a point of fact, and it needs to be understood. The Holy Spirit is the change agent of the Godhead. You must get a grip of that because to miss that is to miss a major fundamental truth of the whole Bible. The Holy Spirit is the change agent of the Godhead. 
And I mean that, and the best way to get it is, and if you'll allow me, let me take you on a brief survey of the Scriptures for a moment. Let me call your attention back to Genesis chapter 1. You can either listen or turn. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse number 1, the Bible says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The fact is, that's the Holy Spirit's first major work was in Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 2, and it's the work of creation. And what we really understand from the Hebrew word is that when the word moved is used, it literally carries the idea of fluttered or, or energized. Most agree that though God as the Father was to speak and the world came into existence, and it was, as it were in this case, without form and void, and in many cases would say lifeless. What the Holy Spirit did, He brought life to it. He energized it to give it the field forces. All the things that are in this earth that are necessary for there to be life here, it is believed that in this context it means that the Holy Spirit was the one that brought that change about in creation. There's a second major work. This is found in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20. The Bible says this, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is talking about the second major work of the Holy Spirit, and that is inspiration. Not only the creation of the world in the sense of energizing and giving life to this earth, but also the business of taking words and putting them on paper and energizing those words, as it were, to be inspired text. And God, as it were, using those then to direct lives. The inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit was a major factor there. I called your attention to Luke chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, in verse number 34, and verse number 35, Dr. Luke says, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? The angels answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Not only creation and not only inspiration, but the Holy Spirit had a work in the incarnation, the bringing of God down to man. The fact that Emmanuel, God with us, was brought about by a work of the Holy Spirit. And I say to you that it's no small work because that presented us with a Savior, a sinless Savior, wrought by the virgin birth of the Son of God. Then I called your attention to a passage in John chapter number 3. In John chapter 3... Note carefully, if you would, the passage begins in verse number 5. John chapter 3, verse number 5. The Bible says in John chapter 3, verse number 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, or said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. The fourth great or major work of the Spirit of the Lord is that of regeneration. Regeneration. Changing a person who is, as it were, born of flesh, being born as of spirit 
And in this case, the Holy Spirit of God is the one who does that great work. Now, another passage in this one in the New Testament epistles. Look at Second, excuse me, First Corinthians, chapter number one. First Corinthians, chapter number. I'll actually make it two. First Corinthians, chapter number two, not one. First Corinthians two. Look at verse number twelve. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What he's talking about in this context is another great work of the Holy Spirit, which is illumination. The only reason you have ever understood anything that the Bible says is because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to it. You can be the greatest preacher in all the world and you cannot get people to see what they are spiritually blind to. And the fact of the matter is, it just doesn't matter how intelligent you are. You can have a law degree from Harvard. You can go to Yale and Princeton. You can graduate from every college in the whole of the United States of America and pick up a Bible and still say, I don't understand it. The reason is because there's only one person who illumines it who opens people's eyes to it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 make that very clear. It is the Holy Spirit of God. That's a major work. And we sometimes take for granted the very fact that we can open the Bible and read it in a devotional setting and understand what it's saying. You shouldn't. You should stop and say, Lord, I thank you for your Spirit that illumines the pages of this Holy Writ so that my heart can understand it. The Holy Spirit does that for you. And boy, what a wonderful blessing that is to any believer who understands the importance of the Holy Scripture. Then there's 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 2. It speaks of a sixth major work. Chapter number 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 12 says, That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through the sanctification of the Spirit and the belief of the truth. The Holy Spirit's sixth major work that's recorded in the Scripture is that of sanctification. Sanctification. And the sanctification process is likewise as all the others. It is a change process. It is changing you from what you were to what you ought to be. It is changing you in the realm of holiness because without holiness, no man ever gets into heaven. Holiness is required. The good news is there's a, a holiness that is given. There is a righteousness that which you're robed. But there is also a practical holiness that you're expected to match up to your position. It's called practical holiness. 
And this is something that the Holy Spirit does in the lives of believers. It, it changes you from what the world is about you unto what God wants for you. And the Holy Spirit is really the only one who knows the mind of God. So He's the one that teaches you, speaks to you, and says to you, you're not living up to what you know to be right. You know better than this. Why don't you live up to that? And it's the Holy Spirit in His work of sanctification that does that. So these are all the major works of the Scripture that reference the Holy Spirit. And there may be others that you may call major that I did not. But I understand that He does a lot of things that we probably do not acknowledge. But I say to you, my point of giving you this brief survey is to point out that He is the change agent. And He's the change agent in you. That's why He's in you. He is in you to grow and move from glory to glory, to help you see truth and then to comply with it. So in the context we're about to take, understand that as a backdrop and look at verse number 9 then. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. There's, a, there's actually two points in verse number 9. The first point says, you're not under the control of the old nature, seeing as how the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's what I just read. That's what he's saying first. You are not under the control of the old nature, seeing as how the Holy Spirit indwells you. The latter part of verse number 9 then says, now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. The second point is, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, you do not belong to Christ, you are none of His. That's the two points of verse 9. So understand it. First off, it's saying you are not under control of the old nature if, in fact, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. That's an important truth. If you have the Holy Spirit, you do not have to do what the old nature tells you to. That's the point. The Holy Spirit's in charge in your life. He is, as it were, your master. And He's the one that gives direction. And you don't have to bow down to the old nature if, in fact, the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you. On the other side of the coin, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Christ, you don't have nothing to do with Christ, indeed, you're going to bow down to the nature. What's the point? The point is this. Who are you listening to? Are you bowing to the old nature? Is it because... You don't have the Spirit of God. Is it because you don't belong to Christ? Or is it because you just simply rebel against Him? You don't like His rules. You don't like His regulations. Like a son that's reared in home and he just does not appreciate mom and dad's rules. And so one day he decides to run away. And like the prodigal son, he runs into a mess and ends up in a hog pen and then realizes what he had at home was better than what he left. And so he decides to go home. And he comes back and he faces up to the reality, well, what was wrong in the first place? It wasn't home and it wasn't rules. It was his heart. So there has to be a change of heart first. And so if the Holy Spirit's trying to work on your life and change it to what it ought to be and you're just having all kinds of trouble with that, what may be the evidence is that the Spirit of Christ doesn't live there. God may be working from the outside, trying to bring conviction of sin to bring you to salvation, not trying to renovate your life to make you like Christ as a saint. The fact of the matter is, it is one or the other. Verse 9 says it has to be. There's only two options here. One, you do not have to obey the old nature if the Spirit of God indwells you. Two, if the Spirit of God does not indwell in you, you're none of Christ. You don't belong to Him. You're not saved by the grace of God, and that's a fact. By the way, it's a, it's a most exciting thing to me to think about this simple truth. I think of it in two letters or two words, excuse me. 
The first one is the ideal you may, excuse me, you may have the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is it is actually a choice. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When we get saved, we receive the Holy Spirit. So you may have the Holy Spirit. Put another way, according to this text, you must have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, one, you're not born again, saved by the grace of God, and two, you're not going to heaven. That's a flat statement in verse number nine. And you need to keep it before you and don't let it get away from you. Don't, uh, don't let it sink away as if it's insignificant. It's extremely important. If you have the Spirit of God, you're going to heaven. If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not. If you have the Spirit of God, you do not have to obey the old nature. You do not have to be controlled by it. You can say no to sin. Note something else, and this verse was tucked away in the book of 1 John, but a verse that I think is very important, and I would recommend you look at it. It's in 1 John, it's in chapter number 3, and it's in verse 24. 1 John 3, 24 says this. 1 John 3, 24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwell in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. What the, that verse of Scripture says is that it's Christ in you. It's the same thing that Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And hope there doesn't mean uncertainty. It means absolute certainty. Christ in you, the certainty of glory. And what 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 24 is saying is simply that the Holy Spirit inside of you assures you you have Christ. The Holy Spirit is Christ in you. That's what 1 John 3, 24 is saying. The Holy Spirit in you is making it possible for you to say, Christ dwells in me. That's how he dwells in you. Christ is a person. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, but he indwells every believer by the Holy Spirit. 1 John 3, 24 is an absolute evident text of that truth. So don't let folks throw you into a loop and those who criticize our reasoning that the Holy Spirit indwells us or Christ indwells us, they'll come back and say, hey, you can't prove that. Oh, yes, we can. 1 John 3, 24 declares it succinctly. Holy Spirit is Christ in you, and that's why Romans 8 and verse 9 says, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, that's why it says that. 1 John 3, 24, that's why it says it in Romans 8 and 9. Therefore, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Doesn't belong to him, has no relationship to him. And by the way, the interchange of those titles, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, they argue for the deity of Jesus Christ. They argue for the deity of Jesus Christ. You have the Spirit of God, you have the Spirit of Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit. And we know them to be all the same thing, all the same person. What's interesting is what we were taught in hermeneutics, things equal to the same thing, is equal to everything else it's equal to. That is, said another way, things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So in this case, all these Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, Holy Spirit, these are all equal to each other, and they're equal as a sense. They make the point that Jesus Christ is deity because he is the God of which this Spirit comes. Notice something else, and this is in verse 10. 
In verse 10 of Romans 8 says, And if, and by the way, it's noticeable all the ifs in the context of Romans 8 through here. In verse 10, And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. It's an interesting thing in verse 1 of chapter 8 that it talks about in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. But in verse 10, it's Christ in you. One is, as we say in verse 1, is positional, and here it is, possessional. You know, he's in me and he works through me. I would remind you to keep before you a very practical and important perspective. And that's found in 1 John chapter, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 6. It says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. This is an important point based on what verse number 10 of Romans 8 is saying. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What that simply is suggesting to you that that is why you should not abuse your body with drugs and smoking and drinking and overeating and whatever else. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was sent there to help you monitor what you do with your body. So that your body could do what passage in Corinthians says, in whatsoever you do in word and do, do all to the glory of God. Whatsoever you eat or drink, whatever you do, whatever you take into this body, whatever comes out of this body in the sense of words and verbiage, everything about you coming from this temple, intent first is to bring honor and glory to the Lord. So you should not do anything to this body that in any way deters from, distracts from bringing honor and glory to the Lord. So it's important to keep before you that this body, this body you and I have as believers, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. I am amazed of how many people, uh, we talk about this among what we call common folks, whether it be at the barber shop somewhere, and this has come up on a couple occasions, and uh, they find out you're a reverend, and they say, oh, reverend, I'll tell you, I just really, you know, I respect church, and boy, I just tell you, boy, I, I just want to do what's good and right and all that, and this guy say, I'll tell you what I'll never do, reverend, you'll never catch me smoking in a church, and we always come back to the same issue. My friend, you speak out of ignorance. The fact is, if you've been saved by the grace of God, your body is the temple, the church of God. It's not a building that sits on the hill at 751 Nineveh Road. When we leave today, the Holy Spirit leaves today. When we arrive, He arrives. It is not this building that He is so sacredly concerned about protecting. He indwells your body, and that's what He's working on to protect, to bring honor to His name. So wherever you go and whatever you do, the ideal is it's that body that you represent and in that body representing the glory of God. So what are you doing with it? There's another facet to this perspective, and this you must keep true. And this is in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians in chapter number 5. Listen to what Paul writes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved... We have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. 
Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident. By the way, note how he's confident and what his confidence is based on. It's based on the earnest of the Spirit. We have this earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident. We're confident because we have a guarantee. That's what he's telling you. I have a guarantee. It's in writing, and therefore I'm absolutely sure what I'm about to say. Confident knowing that whilst we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. For we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The point made of the text is that the Holy Spirit was given to you to give you confidence that one day you're going to go and get home to heaven. That's what the text is saying. We're confident of this. We're absent from the Lord right now. That's right. But the Holy Spirit shows up constantly reminding us, but you're not home yet. I'm working in you and working through you for the time you're in this journey, but I'm here to tell you, you're going to get home. You're going to get home. And that's why he said we're confident. We know that. Why do we know that? Because the Holy Spirit was given to us as an earnest. Earnest money has always been. It's the down payment. It says something more is coming. This will assure you for the present that we'll back up what we've said. And in God's case, he didn't even need to back it up. He just needed to say it. And he said, I'm giving you my spirit. And therefore, you can be confident that while you're absent from the Lord and you're down here doing what you're supposed to be doing, you can be assured of this. You will get home. Why? Because my spirit's inside of you and you're not your own. You've been bought with a price and your body is my temple. I'll guarantee you, I'll get you home. Because you don't belong to yourself. You're not on some ship on some faithful sea out there bouncing around with the waves. No, no, no. He has your number, name, and serial code. You're going to get home. And that's what he's pointing out. And I say to you that there ought to be a great encouragement to that. Verse number 10, he says it again, and it's important to keep before you not to miss the point. Verse 10, and if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. He's saying, yeah, are you going to die? Sure, you're going to die. We're all going to die because of the sin nature. It was in man. In fact, that we were all sinners. We were born that way. That's appointed unto man once to die. That's all because of sin. But I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you from verse number 10. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. As if he cannot wait to give you uh, all the good news. And in fact, he hurries into it almost. And uh, the point here he makes in verse number 11. But, verse 11, but if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Since the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, and since the Holy Spirit of God is the spirit and the power, the change agent that raised up the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, I have good news for you. Yes, you're going to die. Death is just the consequences of sin. And it is appointed unto everybody to die. But a good news is this. Since the Holy Spirit indwells you, and since the Holy Spirit is the one who raised up Christ, the assurance God gives us is He will also quicken your mortal body. He will raise you up. Just the same way He raised the Lord Jesus Christ up, it will be a done deal, and you don't have to worry about it. But perhaps you're sitting here this morning and you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. 
you say, Pastor, there's one problem. I have no relationship to the Holy Spirit. I'm not a believer. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. Every lost person has a relationship to the Holy Spirit. In fact, it could be stated that the very basis of his coming back after the Lord Jesus Christ ascended. You remember the passage says that, that uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, when I go away, I will send another comforter. Another in the Greek has a definition defining the word another of the same kind or another of a different kind. And when he said another, he meant another of the same kind. When I go away, there'll be another coming of the same kind as I am. So I'll not leave you comfortless. Greek word is orphanias. Y'all won't leave you orphans. You won't be left orphanaged. You won't be people who will have to wander around as if there's no direction to your life. I'll assure you, I won't leave you that way. But I'll tell you what we'll do. When He, the Holy Spirit of God, comes, He will reprove, and the word is convict in our language. He will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know what He was saying? He has a relationship to everybody on this earth. His whole ideal of coming was to reprove, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit has a relationship with you. In fact, it could be argued that the very first priority of His coming back after Jesus Christ ascended was because of you. To reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. And the point made about that is, the reason He would even do such a thing is because God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But how shall they believe unless somebody is sent? And how shall they believe even if somebody is sent and preaches a message if the messenger is not the PowerPoint? God sends his spirit with his word. And when the word of God is preached, the Holy Spirit of God must touch it to make it effective in the lives of people. You see, it just doesn't take a preacher. It takes the preacher and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to bring forth fruit. Brian was talking about witnessing this morning in our Sunday school class. Believers' responsibility is to go into all the world and share the gospel. And the good news is you're not in this alone. You see, when you speak the Word of God, and that's so important, is speaking the Word of God, the Holy Spirit has obligated Himself to speak through it, to work on it, and because of it. It's not a fancy argument. It's not a thing of being a Philadelphia lawyer or a New Jersey lawyer or an Indiana lawyer. Now, it doesn't, you don't have to be in that sense, in that realm. You just be a believer and know the Bible teaching concerning man being lost and Christ being the Savior, but depending on the Holy Spirit to spark the Word, spark and convict the heart so the truth can be seen and understood. And it's He who illumines it even to a lost person. I remind you too that John 15 in verse number 26 makes this statement. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, He shall testify of me. He will testify of me. Just be careful that you don't... uh, get caught up in talking about yourself or our church or this preacher or whatever. You remind yourself that the whole idea of when the Spirit of God would come to this earth after Christ ascended, the Holy Spirit's work was to testify of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a passage of Scripture, we ran across it when we preached through 1 Corinthians. It was 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
uh, with verse of scripture, even when I went through it the first time, it always seemed to hit me. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse number 3 says, Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. The point he makes, and there's a, there's a contextual discussion and debate probably over all the reality of it, but the fact of the matter is what it boils down to is that, that the typical thing is that people who have the Holy Spirit would not call Jesus Christ accursed. They would not speak ill of him. They would not speak in terms that would be in any sense depreciating of him or blasphemous of him. The Holy Spirit would not permit that. That would be, that would be something that no true believer could get away with without the Spirit of God shutting him down and convicting him and just deeply distressing him. It just would be next to impossible. And according to this text of Scripture, it is impossible. It just couldn't happen. So the point made about it is that, that therein is why people speak so unappreciatively of the Lord Jesus Christ out in this world. I read a piece a few days ago in a magazine of a testimony of a man before he became a Christian. And the things he said about Jesus Christ in that article were almost more than I could read. He said some very mean things about our Savior. I remind you now that he's come to faith in Christ. All obviously, this bothers him deeply, but he said it, and it was in print. And the consequences of that, that to this day he's troubled by what he said as a lost person about Jesus Christ. And he points out a great important truth. The only way I could say it is that I did not have the Holy Spirit because otherwise he'd have never let me say that kind of thing. And he's absolutely right. The Holy Spirit would not permit you to say untrue things about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a depreciating way. And that's what this word accursed is and says and means in this context. But there's a second part to this verse. When I read this, when I studied it, it says that, Therefore, or wherefore I give unto you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth or can call Jesus a curse. But the latter part says, And no man can call or say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. That means you cannot call Him Lord and mean it without the help of the Holy Spirit. You can't call Him Lord without the help of the Holy Spirit. And, and what that means is simply this. The Holy Spirit's work in the lives of people is to testify them unto them about who Jesus Christ is. So when people come to the New Life Baptist Church and sit in our services here, the first thing that we pray happens is that the Holy Spirit reveals to people sitting here who Jesus Christ really is. Every sermon I preach is not going to get into a full deposition concerning who Jesus Christ is and, and a great theological discussion of all the ramifications of who He is. Well, how in the world are people going to come to know who Jesus Christ is? Because the Holy Spirit is faithful and concise and can do it in moments what I can't do in hours in preaching. He testifies of Christ. He speaks to them where they are of who Christ is and what He can mean to you and what He can do in your life and how He can change you forever. If so, as the Holy Spirit, in this case, if He is allowed or is he in your heart and life, is he have you trusted Him as Savior? Or has it been that you've uh, allowed Him to do His work in changing you? Are you being changed from glory to glory? Where are you now compared to where you were last year at this time? Where are you now compared to two or three years ago? See, it's that kind of thing. We can easily see road construction when it's going on, and we can say, oh, well, they've made a lot of progress. They're moving from where they are to where they were. That's good. The question is, when people see you, where are you from where you are now, where you were? 
It ought to be that people would see in us a spiritual progress. We're all under construction, and I'm not talking about perfection. I know where we all are in that sense. We're all under construction, but there ought to be constructional progress. People we ought to see say, man, they're different. They're better. They're more like Christ. Their principles are different. You know, I was reading this week about a case of a, a family talking and training their children. I, I think they made a good point. And, and this point made was that they were talking about training and helping their children to understand that our government teaches people not to wait for anything. Not to wait for anything. In fact, this man is convinced that the whole welfare system is built on the premise of immediate gratification. Get it right now. I need it right now. And it pushes the government into to seeing, and seeing and perceiving compassionate needs immediately because people don't want to wait. Now, I'm not hard-hearted, or at least I don't think I am. You can make that judgment on your own. But the fact of the matter is this. All through the Christmas holiday, we had people calling the church almost daily, wanting more money, more help, and whatever. And one such conversation came through an afternoon while I was in my office. And in the conversation, this man began to tell me why he needed help from the New Life Baptist Church. And he was not backward, and he was not bashful, and he was not reluctant to tell me what he had, what he was giving, and what he was getting from us if we could give it. This man had already spent $475 on his family for Christmas. And he was calling the New Life Baptist Church to ask us to help him buy another $240 project for his whole family. He thought it would be an, an entertainment kind of thing, whatever. And he wanted us to share in the cost, $247, I believe, and 60-some-odd cents. You know what the problem here is? In America, they don't go by the definition of Scripture about what poor is. We have redefined what poor is in America. You know, in need. We don't know what need is in America. We have a need. We go fix it. We get it. You know, whatever that need. We just get it. We have it. We fixed it. And this guy in this article pointed out a good thing. He said, you ever watch a program on television where you have these lions, you know, a pride of lions, and they're lying under a tree in the heat of the day in an African um, plane somewhere, and there's all these uh, uh, impala deer going by, you know, and they're just walking by. They're just almost within inches of these lions. And you look at that picture and say, what's wrong with this picture? Why aren't these lions grabbing these impala deer and killing them and stacking them in the shade for future use? Because an animal, in some sense, has more sense than Americans. It doesn't take more than it needs. We have a sense we measure need by stacking the deer in the corner and waiting for them. Later on, I won't have to run. They're right here on my doorstep, so kill them and store them. God's animal life doesn't work that way. It takes the need at the moment, and if its need is met, then it doesn't harbor anything else. Now, he's not talking about future investments, and it's not talking about storing up for days when you may need help. It's not talking about that. It's talking about what we use the word need. But I say to you, and I say to my own heart at the same time, there is a sense in which the Holy Spirit works in our lives to try to show us things concerning our children and teaching them concerning the matters of getting their needs met and teaching them what their immediate need is and what that need is and how it's met and not just met for temporary time but eternal ways. That is folks in conversation two days ago with talking about their children and a discussion centered around one of the children not being saved. 
And they asked me a question, and the question was very simple. How would you try to lead this child to faith in Jesus Christ? I said, I wouldn't. And they said, you wouldn't? I said, no. Not until the child is convicted of their sin and need of Christ. You said, well, what would you just tell them they need to trust Christ? Oh, certainly. I'd just be continuously saying to them that I hope my life reflects to you that Christ has come to this world to die for sinners, of which we all are. And as God speaks to your heart and causes you to see that, you need to trust Christ as Savior. But you don't need to do it until you see it in your heart. If you do it prematurely, it won't be conversion. It'll be a, it'll be a contriving to please mom and dad. And that won't get you into heaven. Getting into heaven is based upon having the Holy Spirit. Having the Holy Spirit is based upon you truly believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being regenerated. They don't go in optional choices. You know, you don't believe on Christ now and 10 years later get the Spirit of the Lord. The moment you believe on Christ, He comes to live and indwell you. And He comes with purpose to remodel your life. To remodel your life. To take you from where you are to where you ought to be. And none of us are where we ought to be, so it's an ongoing construction project. And by the way, as I say in our counseling sessions, you know, submission is the key word in living a Christian life. Submission is. Submission. No doubt about that. The ideal of and intent to be and understand where I am in the plan of God and His program. And the passage in Ephesians is a great one. It says, And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. That's interesting because it comes before an admonition to submit. Because you cannot submit unless the Spirit of the Lord helps you do so. It's an impossibility. It's against every grain in your body, every fiber of your being, every cell that makes up who you are. Because we are born of flesh. We were born sinners. And our hearts are in this tent of attitude of, I'll do it my way, I'll do it on my own terms, and nobody needs to tell me how to do it. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, He says, look, here is the way you've been going, and we need to change that. We're going to start going in this direction. And it takes submission. And only He can provide that. morning, I ask you to submit to one thing. To the Lord and His plan for your life, to make sure that you do that which He would please be pleased with, and it begins obviously with the matter of salvation. If you're here without Jesus Christ, you've never believed on Him as your Savior. I would encourage you to do so this morning, and in doing so, I would remind you that when you trust Christ, the Holy Spirit of God moves in. He moves in not just to so you can depend on Him when you pray, and you know, and He can pray for you, which He does. Romans eight says, when you can't explain yourself to God, the Holy Spirit prays. And there's no doubt about that. But that's not the big reason. The big reason is that he is the foreman of a whole change process for your life. And he's also a guarantee that you belong to Christ. And one day, someday, you'll get there. But while you're here, he has a whole list of things he'd like for you to do. And I say to you this morning, the question is, have you submitted to what he wants you to do? It may be there are young men in the church who God has spoken to about a call to ministry, call to preach, call to the mission field. Maybe some young ladies in here, God's ladies hand upon them that they are to be Bible-believing Christian teachers, to go out into a community and government schools even and, and teach God's Word. It may be that. I don't know what it is. That's not my calling to tell you what yours is. What mine is is to tell you that God has, through His Spirit, a plan for your life, and the Holy Spirit's been given to you to help you carry it out. 
I can't think of anything worse than for God to do all that he's done and work in all the departments he has to give you his spirit that did all these wonderful major works and for you not to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in getting the job done that he's assigned you before you get home. You imagine that? I mean, just think of it this way. What if when God the Father spoke and said, let, you know, let, let there be, and there was all the earth, and it was without form and void, and then the Holy Spirit's over here, and He is somewhere out running around chasing deer. And He was supposed to be there moving up on the face of the water, and He was out of place. Didn't do His job. Now, you know that, and I know that would never happen, because God is God, and He'd never do that. But what God put in us was the Holy Spirit that would help us to do what God ordained us to do. And if we're not doing it, You'll forgive me, but it's almost like he wasted the Spirit, see? He put the Holy Spirit in us to help us toward that goal. And yet there are some folks sit on the sideline and fold their hands and do absolutely nothing to accommodate what God's plan for their life and the life of the church is. I'm telling you, that won't be looked over lightly because the work is too important and too eternal. Do you know Christ? Are you cooperating with the Holy Spirit in you for his renovative work? May at times be discouraging, may be disgusting at times, the work that he's doing, and you're discouraged about not getting things done or accomplished. I just simply say to you, the point is, is he at work? That's what's important. And if he is, cooperate with him. Submit to whatever he's planned. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for Romans chapter 8, and we thank you especially for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for his faithfulness and working with us and dealing with us times when we are uncooperative and times when we may be downright rebellious. We thank you for your faithfulness in continuing to deal with us according to your grace. And today we would ask you that your spirit might in fact have free reign in our hearts, that we would submit ourselves to his leadership, his rulership, his lordship. And I would pray today that you would remind us that his presence there is to tell us that you've not forgotten us and that we are yours and that you have a plan for us to accomplish and accommodate here while we're left. It may be a plan of a mother rearing her children in her home and making sure that they're properly trained. It may be of a job for a man to make sure that he earns a living to take care of his family and helps his family to be faithful in worshiping you. It can be some of the things that this world may not look upon as really be a high priority, but with you are a major issue. So help us not to judge the importance of what you've left us to do by the standards of a pagan, fallen, dying, dead world. Help us to judge that which you want us to do by the standard of your word and the importance that it has on the generations to come. Remind us not only that Rome was not built in a day, but remind us that the Christian life is not a snapshot, but it's a long-running video. It just keeps on going until we are called home, until we walk into your presence. And so help us not to depend upon some great event in our life wherein we have done some good and think that that might somehow accommodate all the other requirements of all the other slides. Remind us it's an ongoing process. And remind us that we're not home yet but there is much to be accomplished. I pray for the man, woman, boy, or girl in this building this morning who has never believed on Christ as Savior, or though they may have prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, or signed a piece of paper, they're certainly sure yet in their hearts that they do not know Christ because they know they, know they do not have the biting presence of the Holy Spirit. 
They do know that they have nothing in them that bears them against that which they ought not do. And they pretty well run their life the way they want to and never consult anyone or anything. Father, for them I pray this morning, please don't let the devil blind them and walk them into the flames of hell. Remind them that the devil is a deceiver. And he does not even mind you being a little religious as long as you do not believe on Christ. He does not even mind that you tell people you know Jesus Christ. If in fact you don't, he would even encourage that. So Father, remind us that your word is the one that sets the tone and is the measurement for whether or not we are really truly born again. And it is not the feelings, the feelings that we sometimes conjure. So I'm asking for your help. I'm asking you to do a work in our hearts and our lives and in our services this morning that no mortal can. Show us. Prove us. Test us. And make us to know for sure our relationship with you. And then help us to do what we need to do about it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282, the first stanza, Just As I Am. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, we'd urge you to simply obey whatever God has said for you to do. We encourage you and would exhort you and beseech you to follow through on doing it. So as we sing, you simply obey. Would you? 282, verse 1. Let's sing together. Just as I am without one plea. God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention and your time. And may the Lord bless you for being with us. And do please come back and be with us tonight. Bring your Bible. Get into God's Word. Brother Ryan, as he opens the Scriptures to us, I hope you'll come be with us 6 o'clock for the evening service. Let us pray, please. Our Father, thank you for the Holy Spirit. Help us to be complied and compliant with Him. and Help us to submit ourselves to your will through His leadership. And I pray that even this day that you'll bless your word as it going forth in the Sunday school hour and here in the worship service. And then again, as we come to the evening service, I pray for Brother Ryan as he opens the scriptures to us. May your spirit direct us through the truth we hear. Father, I do thank you for the work that you have accomplished in the lives of believers over the years. And I pray that ours might also be a heritage that would bring glory to you long after we are gone. Remind us that this is not our home. We're just passing through here. And it's important that we leave a legacy of hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so help all that we're doing now account for purposes fulfilled as we sign off. Guide us as we go. Give safety and protection to your people. Protect them and bring them back to the evening service. And bless this new week in the new year. Help us to honor and glorify you in it. And bless the work of the New Life Baptist Church. Help us to be more effective and more fruitful. And help us to do those things which bring much honor and much glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You are dismissed.